we need something else. And what we did um, Friday night was we read, literally read, John chapter 18 and John chapter 19. And so, what better way to continue that story than to look at part of John chapter 20, right? And that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to read something before we begin the, the actual message. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, if you don't know about the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you need to, it'd be worth a Google or two uh, to figure out who he was. He was a, uh, a dissenter in Nazi Germany during World War II, and he was actually part of a plot to kill Hitler. And the bomb went off, but Hitler didn't die. And they arrested him, and he died. They hung him. Uh, Two, I think it was two weeks before the end of World War II. But he was a theologian, uh, a man of, of high Christian value. And this is what he says. And as we gather this morning, and, and you wonder, should we have been outside? Well, maybe, but rain and cold weather and such. But as we think about the sun coming up over that hill that way, Bonhoeffer says this, The early morning belongs to the church of the risen Christ. At the break of light... It, the church, remembers the morning on which death and sin lay prostrate in defeat and new life and salvation were given to mankind. That's pretty good. The early morning belongs to the church of the risen Christ. I don't always feel that. Tomorrow morning I probably won't feel that, right? But I want to quickly recap the events of what we've called Holy Week as we try to claim the light this morning as we try to claim this early morning. And we remember this morning who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and who Jesus is. And as we look back, starting last Sunday, which was Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey, and the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. Literally, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were excited because this guy, Jesus, had done some really neat stuff. And that's in our vernacular. It was really fantastic stuff. Phenomenal stuff. Unbelievable stuff. People born blind could see at his word. Withered limbs extended. Women who had issues of blood for years and years were healed. People would touch Him and healing essence would flow out from Him. He multiplied fish and loaves and fed thousands of people. And they liked this guy. They liked what He could do and they're like, this is going to be our king. Israel looked with a hope and said, we have found our Messiah, the coming one, the anointed one, God's anointed one, who is going to save us. So they cried, Hosanna! Save us now! Bless us now! Overthrow the Romans and set up your rule and reign now. Jesus had other plans though. So He leaves Jerusalem and He spends the night in Bethany. And Monday morning... He leaves Bethany to go back to Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree. And he's hungry. So he goes to get a fig and there's no figs on it. What's he do? He curses it. He says, may fruit never grow on you again. But he wasn't done 
with his curses this day. He rides into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he loses his mind in anger. He didn't really lose his mind, but it looked like it. He's turning tables over and he makes a cord of rope and he's running money changers out and coins and pigeons flying everywhere. And he's like, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, all of a sudden, all this king talk starts looking a little weird, right? Who is this guy? Maybe he has gone authority crazy and maybe he is going to start a coup. Maybe. Maybe not. That night as he's leaving, he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps for Jerusalem. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have brought you under my wings like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And since you didn't know the day of your visitation, now it's hidden from you. And then he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is what they had said the day before. But he had different plans. So he goes back to Bethany. Wednesday is silent in the Scriptures. There's no record of activity. Probably a lot of planning for the Passover that was coming up. Which continued into Thursday. And Thursday was a great day. Thursday he celebrates the Passover in the upper room with his disciples. But before they can celebrate the Passover, somebody forgot a little detail. Nobody washed anybody's feet. So Jesus gets up from the table, wraps a towel around himself, and goes around and washes the disciples' feet. And he says, If I, your master, have washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. I have given you an example of how you should live. And then he said, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And he says, A new commandment now I give to you. Love like I have loved you. At some point of the meal, a guy named Judas gets up and leaves. He'd struck a deal with the chief priests and the scribes to betray Jesus and to turn him over to them. Judas loved money. After he leaves, Jesus starts really doing some teaching. He lays it on and he's telling his disciples the last things that he wants them to hear because he knows that his time is at hand. And He's told them time and time again that he was going to Jerusalem and they were going to crucify him and he was going to die and he was going to be raised from the dead. Peter at one point rebuked him and said, Lord, may it never happen to you. But he knew, Jesus knew. So they leave the upper room and they walk across the Kidron Valley and Jesus ends up in a place called Gethsemane where he prays with intense passion, with drops of blood sweating out of his brow. And he says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it be, but not my will, but yours be done. Three times. And then he gets up, and Judas walks over and kisses him on the cheek, and they arrest him. And everybody runs off. John and Peter follow close behind, but everybody's gone. Early morning Friday, Jesus goes through six trials. Six. 
in the early morning hours. He's scourged. He's handed over for crucifixion. He's mocked. They place a crown of thorns on his head. He carries his cross to a certain point, and then a man named Simon of Cyrene is conscripted to carry his cross to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They hang him up on that stick at about 9 a.m. And for six hours, he's on that cross. And he's paying the penalty for my sins and for your sins. And finally he says, it is finished. The word is tetelestai. It's an accounting term, which means paid in full. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus is dead. A rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea asks for his body, takes the body down, places it in a tomb nobody had ever been in. And the Jews celebrate their Passover. A high holy day. Saturday is silent except for the fact that there were guards set at the tomb to guard the dead man. Because you never know what those dead people will do, right? (laughs) And then Sunday. Today. Jesus is raised from the dead before dawn. He shows himself five times that day. We were not going to cover all those. But what I want you to get in mind this morning is I want you to imagine the hopelessness of his disciples on what was meant to be the biggest celebration of the Jewish calendar. It's Passover. And that's all about families and gathering and remembering God's mighty deeds and God's deliverance, God's joy and God smiting their enemies and a sea parted and a million other things. And I'd say the only thing that they can think is, He is dead. He's dead. Which probably leads them to thinking that they too would probably be dead soon. Now, they didn't remember a lot of what Jesus said, but I'd say, after he died, they probably recalled him saying, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And maybe they remembered they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Something tells me they remembered those words. Because where do we find them on Sunday? We find them in a locked room all together. John 20, 19 starts like this. On the evening of that day, Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now catch that. It's evening on the first day of the week. So that's Sunday evening. And here sit the disciples in a room locked in together. Sounds like a bunch of scared, hopeless, despondent disciples to me. But doesn't that seem a little bit strange? It's evening of the first day of the week. It's Sunday evening. 
it's Sunday morning right now, right? And why do we gather on Sunday morning? Because we remember that He's risen. So why is it Sunday evening and these, this motley crew of fools are sitting locked in a room scared of the Jews? Did, didn't, didn't something happen Sunday morning? Like a resurrection or something? Well, it did. Let's look back at the beginning of John 20. We're going to read the first ten verses. This is Sunday morning. The morning before the evening that we just read about. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Like I did this morning here. It was dark when I got here, y'all. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. There's the youthful John just saying, I'm faster than Peter, by the way. I won, I won the race. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. That's John. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just recap that real quick. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. She wants to dress the body and not let it smell too bad as it decomposes. And she finds that the stone, this giant stone that covered the mouth of the tomb is rolled back. And that's all she saw according to John here. And when she saw that, it says that she ran to Peter and John and reported that Jesus had been taken out of his tomb and she didn't know where to. Now imagine her hopelessness, her grief, her fear, her anger. All of these hard emotions that bombarded her standing here at the empty tomb of her teacher and master. Imagine her hopelessness. Imagine her despair. And let's leave her for a second and look at the disciples again. So Peter and John run to the tomb. I don't know how far it was. John looks in first and sees grave clothes, but nothing else. And then Peter sees the same thing and actually goes into the tomb. And then John goes into the tomb too. And it says that John saw and believed. Well, what did he believe? I think it means that he believed that Jesus wasn't there. And that's about it. Because verses 9 and 10 say, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now catch that. <laughs> they did not understand the fact that the Scripture said that the Messiah must rise from the dead even though they came to a tomb with a stone rolled back and nobody was there. They still didn't understand that Jesus had said multiple times, the Scriptures had testified that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. They didn't understand. Anybody feel that way sometimes? They didn't yet understand it. 
So they went back to their homes that morning of the first day of the week, that most miraculous of all days, that Resurrection Sunday. They went back to their homes. (laughs) And come evening, like we saw earlier, they're sitting in a room together, locked in with who knows what going on in their heads and hearts and minds. Questions, questions, questions. Where is he? Did somebody take him? What's going to happen to us? Did we just waste three years of our lives? How could Jesus have done what He did? Now what? But now we get back to Mary Magdalene earlier that morning. Peter and John have left the empty tomb. And Mary must have followed them back there because as we pick up in verse 11 of John 20, we read this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, you want to see a picture of hopelessness? Look at Mary standing, weeping outside the tomb. She had come. She had seen the stone moved. She ran back to tell the disciples that someone had taken Jesus' body, though she didn't know that. Then she came back to that same tomb. She watched Peter and John leave, probably shrugging their shoulders as they walked off into the bleak morning. And now she stands outside of the tomb weeping. And then she stoops to look into the tomb, filled with hopelessness. And what does she see? Verse 12. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So she sees not the one dead man she's looking for, but rather two live... Well, they're not men. She sees two angels... Did she know that they were angels? It doesn't appear as if she did. They're sitting there, one at the place where Jesus' head had been and one where His feet had been, and she has a pretty casual conversation with them with one thing on her mind. Look at here. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Now again, imagine the hopelessness of this. They ask her why she's crying, and her statement is, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. They, those opposed to Jesus and His work, must have taken His dead body and laid it somewhere else. And she didn't even know where that was. She might have had some idea where she thought it might have been, because criminals and insurgents and all those who were crucified were usually taken to the outside of the city and thrown into the dump literally to be burned and to decompose there. Now imagine her horror at the thought of her Lord's body being thrown into the dump. And she is empty and horrified. And now watch this. In her horror, she sees someone else. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Woo! All right! Jesus! It's Jesus! We finally have hope! Yay! (laughs) But look at the rest of the verse. (laughs) But she did not know that it was Jesus. (laughs) Now take that in. In hopelessness, she turns from a tomb where she had just had a conversation with two angels that led to no more hope than before the conversation, maybe worse. And then she sees Jesus. 
he's alive, he's breathing, he's walking, he, he's Jesus. And it says, but she did not know that it was Jesus. You ever miss Jesus when you see him? And then he even speaks to her. But look what happens. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Basically a conscripted slave, probably of Joseph of Arimathea, who owned the tomb and probably the garden. She thinks Jesus is just the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus, whose dead body she had come to tend to, was talking to her. But she thought it was someone else. She did not know that it was him, but supposed it was the gardener whose garden she was in. And she was real polite to him. And just asked to know where her dead Lord was so she could take his dead body away and tend to it. Take it away. Where? Well, who knows? Did she have a plan? Maybe she didn't even know. How was she going to carry the dead body of Jesus? She's, give me some information I can work with here and I'll do whatever needs done to function in this grief and numb hopelessness. And then something well beyond her expectations happens. In the very depth of despair and despondency, verse 16 happens. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Hopeless, grieving Mary, just wanting to make sure her dead teacher's body doesn't stink too badly, receives the first verification of the greatest miracle of all time. Jesus is alive. And He reveals Himself to her simply by saying her name. And her ears are unstopped and her eyes are open. And grief and fear and hopelessness are buried under an avalanche of pure, unbridled hope. Now can you imagine the shock and the joy? Mary. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now what? <laughs> Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Jesus tells her not to cling to Him, but to go and tell his disciples, whom he now calls his brothers, exclamation point, and to say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And she did just exactly what he told her to do. Now can you imagine the joy for them? Well, actually, this is where we found them way back at the beginning of the message. And where were they? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, let's gather some facts here. Okay, let's conglomerate all this before we finish. We've seen Mary at the tomb while it's still dark, seeing the stone rolled away. We see Peter and John race back to the tomb, 
race to the tomb, affirm that it's empty, and go back to where they had been. We saw Mary talk to angels and despair to the supposed gardener wanting to know where Jesus' body was, only to come to hear, see, and understand that this gardener was actually Jesus when he spoke her name. And then he tells her to go tell his disciples that she had seen him. And now we find them locked in their room, not looking like hopeful people. So she had come back early in the morning and said, I saw Jesus. He's alive. And come evening of that day, they're locked in a room afraid of the Jews. What happened? Did did they not believe her? Why were they locked in a room later in the day if Mary had come and said, "I, I saw Jesus, He talked to me, He told me to come and tell you that He ascends to His Father and our Father, to our God and His God. Cool, Mary, we're going to stay locked in the room if that's all right with you. Maybe they had taken Jesus' statement about ascending literally and thought that He was just gone. Maybe they thought Mary was delusional. That's possible. Either way, these aren't triumphant followers of a risen Messiah. This is a scared, confused bunch of Jewish peasants locked in a room because they're afraid that the Jewish authorities were coming after them. And then what happens? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now again, get a hold of this if you possibly can. In the midst of fear, confusion, doubt, uncertainty, guilt, shame, blame, maybe a little bit of hope, and who knows what else, Jesus just miraculously shows up in their midst. In the midst of their locked room, bypassing their safety valves and plans of preservation and pronounces peace to them. They weren't expecting Him. They weren't looking for Him. And they were in a place that was anything but conducive to cultivating faith. And Jesus just shows up at His leisure according to His plan and His will and He brings with Him hope and wonder. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they had been scared and hopeless. But Jesus shows up, speaks peace to them, shows them His hands and His side, still bearing the scars of the brutal ordeal He had gone through on Friday. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I'd say they were. What about us? Anybody ever seen Jesus? I haven't seen him. He's been dead almost 2,000 years, and then he was risen, and then he ascended, and he's been in heaven for over 2,000 years in a real body, interceding for us this whole time. And I have this great hope! Not like, oh boy, I hope he is alive. It's not that kind of hope. It's a sure, rock-solid foundation that I can plant my feet in that he is alive. So what do I do with this? 
What do I do with Resurrection Sunday? <laughs> a couple things I want to point out, which we'll point out probably again in the other message this morning. Just a couple quick application points. Your situations, your circumstances can surely deceive you. I want you to think about what happened that morning. Mary comes and sees the stone rolled away and she jumps to a conclusion. They've taken him. She didn't bring to mind the thought that he said he would rise again. She just jumped to a conclusion. They've taken him. Peter and John come. They see the grave clothes. They don't come to the conclusion he's alive. They go back home and lock themselves in a room with the rest of the disciples. Mary talks to a couple of angels and doesn't even know they're angels. That didn't seem like. They've taken my Lord away. I don't know where He is. Then she turns around and He's standing right there. And she thinks it's the gardener. And I would ask you this morning, these hard bad, confusing situations and circumstances that you are in right now are very likely a stone rolled away. They're very likely a couple of angels sitting in a tomb. These situations are very likely the Lord Himself. And we can't see it. We can't see it. Maybe you haven't heard Him speak your name yet in these situations. And what I would offer you this morning is the hope that when Jesus shows up, we don't always see Him. We don't always know what He's doing. We can't remember the words that He said. We can't remember the faithfulness of three and a half years of ministry. We can't remember the miracles and the crowds proclaiming Hosanna. All we can think is He's dead. All we can think is, if He loved me, He wouldn't let me feel this way. If He loved me, He wouldn't put me in this situation. If Jesus was who He really said He was, He wouldn't be dead. And this morning as we stand at an empty tomb with a stone rolled away with Jesus standing right there. I would offer you hope. And I would say do not despair. He is with you. He is for you. And He is about to call your name. And when He does... Second application point. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus speaks your name, when Jesus invites Himself into your locked room of fear and sorrow and doubt and blame and shame and regret, when Jesus shows up, He brings hope. Rock, solid, sure hope that He is who He said He was. That we are who He said We are. That He will never leave us nor forsake us. 
that these situations and these circumstances that you're going through right now are not beyond the scope of His sovereignty. He has never stopped loving you. He has never let go of you. He has never not been alive in your situation and in your circumstances. And He stands and He calls your name to give you an unshakable hope in the midst of your situation and your circumstances. And it changes everything. Everything. Because I know... He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. And until I see Him face to face and audibly hear Him say my name, and I will, I have the unshakable, unwavering faith that Jesus Christ is alive. And life is worth the living. Because He lives. You can be deceived by your situation and your circumstances, but when Jesus shows up in those circumstances and situations, He brings the hope of a risen, eternally living Savior. So let's latch on to that hope this morning. And let's trust Him. Let's believe Him. And know that the historical account of the resurrection is true, and it changes everything. Let's pray. God, thank you that you know so much better than we what we should be doing, what situations we should be in, what circumstances we are a part of. And more than that, God, you proclaim to us this resurrection morning that you are with us in the midst of them all. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to remember the things that you have said. Give us a mind to remember, a heart to remember your faithfulness through every situation that we've ever been through. And may our hope be that sure, steadfast anchor that steadies us and keeps us in every storm. And that anchor is behind the veil where Jesus is, seated at your right hand, Father. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. God, would you speak hope to the hopeless this morning? And we've all been there. Some of us are there now. God, in a still, small voice, in the power of your Holy Spirit, would you whisper our names this morning and remind us that you are the risen Lord. Show up in our midst, just like you did for the disciples. We don't need a physical body to show up in our midst because we know the testimony of your Spirit within our spirits testifies that these things are true. So may we not be those who live in fear and doubt and shame and blame and hopelessness. God, by the power of your Spirit, help us be those who have latched on to an eternal hope that cannot be shaken. And may we live this way. May we live emboldened as these disciples did after these occurrences. And may we proclaim the excellencies 
of the risen Lord. For your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.